Good afternoon, folks. If I could ask everyone to take his or her seat. We still have a couple folks coming in, so I'd like to accommodate them. But if you can find a seat, please do. And I've been asked that people who have not signed in on the guest book, please do so afterwards. No food or drink until you've signed the guest book. All right. Thank you, President Bowen. Uh, what a beautiful way to welcome everyone in today for the celebration of the life of Joe Morton. Dad loved music. He wasn't much for performing it. And he really would have enjoyed that today. So thank you. I'm Jason. I'm Joe's son. And friends, I come not to bury Joe Morton, but to praise him. <laughs> Maybe have a couple laughs at his expense. Dad was born in Hungary in 1935 on what would later be known as Pearl Harbor Day. He and his parents, Tibor and Rose, and his sister, Veronica, only 18 months older than him, left Budapest in the summer of 1941, ostensibly on a vacation. Dad's family was among the last Jews who were fortunate enough to leave Europe. On their passage out, they arrived in Munich during a British air raid and that's one of the vivid details Dad recalls about his trip to the States. From there, they flew to Madrid and set sail on September 19, 1941, on the Excambian. It was a U.S. passenger ship, which was the last ship to leave Europe. And was, excuse me, and was later sunk by the Nazis. Among the photos that Scott Davis has lovingly curated for us, and I hope you will enjoy them afterwards today, is one of Dad, Veronica, and their parents arriving in New York Harbor on September 29, 1941. They would settle in Rochester that fall. Dad said many times that he was lucky to be alive beyond his fifth birthday, and he definitely made good use of that time. Dad was a good student from grade school on, he was near the top of his class in high school, was a student body vice president, but beyond his intelligence, he found a very useful skill. He could replicate the handwriting of almost any adult. <laughs> so dad would write students excuses to get out of homework or particular assignments or class or other commitments. In high school, he began to excel in track and cross country by happenstance. Come on in. He learned that he could save himself the nickel bus fare if he ran back and forth to school. At Amherst, he continued his athletic endeavors, which included cross-country track, and he even dabbled in boxing, football, and wrestling. He was hardly the conformist at Amherst, though. He was part of the 1% did not join a fraternity there. After Dad's sophomore year, he joined the Army. Dad felt that some change was in order. So apparently Amherst didn't have study abroad back then. <laughs> in any event, he served from 1955 to 1957. Said that basic tra training was not really unpleasant and not difficult for someone in his shape. 
he was stationed in Korea in I-Corps near Weejongbu, which is the area that's depicted in the TV show MASH. And to continue the sitcom analogy, Dab was the company clerk, so yes, he was Radar O'Reilly. <laughs> and he probably had the same enjoyment of uh, grape knee-high, I'm sure. In Korea, Dad served under, under the leadership of an officer whom he said he admired and respected in many ways. But he began to distrust the military and the army because this particular officer's uncritical faith in the military and military might as a solution to conflict. This officer said sometimes, why didn't we continue on from Korea through China to Moscow? Dad also questioned the United States' support for the ruthless dictator in South Korea, Syngman Rhee, who was wildly and deservedly unpopular among the South Korean people. Dad came back from Korea, completed his studies at Amherst, with perhaps a little bit more focus and appreciation for college life. From there, he went on to earn his PhD at Hopkins, and in the spring of 1963, a Hopkins advisor told him of a part-time opening at a small, then single-sex, then rural school known as Goucher. Dad began what was to be his only job as an adult in the fall of 1963. The first class he taught was logic. It was also the very last class that he taught in the spring semester of 2005. It was here at Goucher, Dad said, that he was given the freedom and encouragement to explore novel fields and projects for which he had no formal training, knowing that he would do so responsibly and prepare vigorously. He taught philosophy, logic, peace studies, Native American studies, religion, even photography, taking me and Joe Trail into the dark room on one occasion. I can still smell the tangy odor of the stop bath. And for those of you born after 1990, see me afterwards and I'll explain to you what film is, or was. Perhaps Dad's favorite of those disciplines was peace studies, the inspiration and beginnings of which he deflected credit to, to any number of sources. Thoreau, Jane Addams, Gandhi, Margaret McCooch of the class of 1923 here at Goucher, and to the many, many students who really helped bring that program to life, and many of whom are here today. Dad was so glad to be succeeded by Sevla Dawit, who advanced the program to becoming not just a department, but one deserving of national acclaim. Dad's support of Goucher, excuse me, from Goucher, was not just to pursue academic endeavors, but to put his convictions into action. One such conviction was that Dad felt an obligation to resist a government which had or practiced corrupt principles. And so, in 1986, Dad was arrested in the rotunda of the Capitol building for protesting congressional aid or authorization of congressional aid to the Contras. This was his first arrest, at least his first intentional one. And Pro President Rhoda Dorsey announced not long afterwards in a faculty, faculty meeting, I'm glad to report that Joe Morton is not in jail. <laughs> My experience about this arrest was just a little bit different. 
Dad made his, maybe it was his one phone call to me. I was in an all-staff meeting at the Hunt Valley Golf Course. <laughs> this was probably the only telephone call I ever got from Dad at work. I was 17 years old. I remember distinctly crouching down behind the bar as I took this call. And Dad said, every, or excuse me, he said, I've been arrested. Everything is going as planned, or words to that effect. <laughs> Dad and his fellow co-defendants went through a week-long jury trial, three days of jur jury deliberation, and then were sentenced to 70 hours of community service. Dad considered Goucher to be his alma mater in a way that even Hopkins and Dear Amherst were not. Goucher students, Many of you, past and present, are here today. You are the ones who inspired him, sustained him, collaborated with him, conspired with him, grew and learned with him. And truly, you kept him young. I think that dad preferred the company of young people, and I include in that category people who possess the youthful traits of openness, optimism, wonder, and service to others. So to Goucher alumni and alumnae, current students, colleagues, and staff, I say thank you for nourishing my father for most of his 80 years. Life can be a little bit different for a child whose father is a philosopher. People used to say to me, your dad's a philosophy professor. You must have interesting dinner table conversation. <laughs> I would say yes, but I think the topic of conversation would surprise them. We usually talked baseball. It was one of dad's loves, even though he assessed his own playing ability from his days at Cobbs Hill in Rochester as good field, no arm, and no hit. That's known as a one-tool player. But dad was a student of the game, and he loved the statistics much longer, excuse me, more long before every metric was crunched on a daily, almost hourly basis. And so dad would spend time in his room poring over the newspaper and computing his own players' batting statistics. His favorite player was Joe DiMaggio, and dad told me that he saw Joe hit a grand slam off the great Bob Feller at Yankee Stadium in 1948. On that same trip to New York, Dad recalled wanting to talk to every person he saw out on the corner begging for help or for food and had to be torn away from them. His regard for fellow man and woman would, of course, continue unabated for the rest of his life. Dad told me when, when I was growing up that he didn't root for a particular baseball team. He liked individuals. He liked to follow Brooks Robinson and Ken Singleton and Eddie Murray. But during the 1983 season, Dad became a fan of the Orioles, just like the rest of us did around here. That happened to be the year that Dad and I, from our convenient perch at the corner of 39th and Greenmount, could take in an O's game on a whim. If there was a roar coming from Memorial Stadium, usually from section 34, Dad would say, quick, turn on the radio, see what's going on. I would dutifully turn on the one radio that there was in his house. And in 1983, went to, we went to nearly every promotion night that there was. Tankard hat, excuse me, tankard, floppy hat, batting helmet, lunchbox, 
If it was remotely useful and free, Dad and I were there. <laughs> Dad wanted to go one night in August when the Blue Jays were in town, and we were locked in a battle with them for first place. I begged off. It wasn't school at that time, but we were having soccer practice twice a day, and I didn't want to be up late and not be in good shape for Coach Meisel the next day. So Dad woke me up the next morning and told me in great detail how the Orioles had used up all their, their position players and ended up with Gary Renneke at third, John Lowenstein at second, and Len Sakata catching. That won't mean anything to some of you who are maybe under the age of 40, but trust me, Rhino had no business at third. <laughs> and Lowenstein was a great left fielder, but he should not have been at second. Tippy Martinez picked off three Blue Jays in one inning, and then Len Sakata won the game with a walk-off three-run homer. And the Orioles, of course, went on to win the World Series against the Phillies that year. Sorry, Andy Clemmer. <laughs> and Dad sent me the Baltimore, excuse me, Baltimore Sun's article about this game that was published on the 30th anniversary, so in 2013. And he took that opportunity to remind me again that I let school commitments get in the way of us missing baseball history. <laughs> you were right, Dad. More recently, Dad and I would spend quiet time together when he would come to visit. After Kelly and the girls would finally go to sleep, we would sit down and watch the O's or the Nats, and Dad marveled that you could watch a couple games at the same time and in color. And he would roll his eyes when the announcers would say something like, Manny Machado's on a six-game hit streak. Dad would say, DiMaggio went for 56. Now that's a streak. Dad was also my soccer coach for a brief period of time, learning for the sport and about how to coach from the gruff but sage and present today, Snuffy Gelston. Uh, Mr. Gelston's son, Trey, is probably the friend I've known longer than anybody else. Dad and I would practice soccer, and particularly he would make me learn how to kick with my left foot. Couldn't do this in our backyard, so we did it in the rough at Hunt Valley Golf Course. And we had to be careful, and I had to learn to succeed with my left foot because golfers did not appreciate when the ball rolled down into the fairway. They just didn't understand soccer, apparently. Dad applied some democratic principles to coaching soccer. When his team of 11 and 12 year olds showed up for the first day of practice, we each received a type sheet of instructions that were guidelines for playing for Coach Morton. Among them were rules about supporting your teammates, not bad mouthing, I think was one of the rules, playing time, everyone got to play exactly three quarters of a game, and everybody got to captain at least one game, and when you captain that game, you could pick whatever position you wanted. Not surprisingly, we didn't win a lot of games. <laughs> and when it came time to select an all-star game, well, the egalitarian coach handed out a ballot with everyone's name on it <laughs> and said, select your top five. This was probably the only chance I ever had in my life to make an all-star team, and I didn't, because <laughs> I wasn't the most popular player on the team. I remember coming home, and Dad and I were tallying the votes, and Dad figured out the math 
probably quicker than Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz have in recent days. And I remember I was close to tears and mom said, come on, Joe, let him make the team. But dad was firm, even though he vote for he did vote for me, but uh, he didn't make the team. The silver lining was that the, the kid who kept me off the team did not answer the phone that week. So when he couldn't show up, dad put me in in his slot. Later on, dad would faithfully attend almost all of my soccer games at Boys Latin and shoot photos with his trusty Nikon and even film them on Super 8. Again, see me after if you need an explanation. He didn't miss many games, but when he did, he wanted a complete recap. Throughout the years at BL, I called my dad every morning, unless I was with him, at 6.30 a.m. If I didn't call at 6.30, then I would get a phone call a few minutes later, and dad would say, where you been? <laughs> what the hell did we talk about at 6.30 in the morning? I don't know that I'd want to say anything to anybody at that time other than get away from me. <laughs> By the way, Sadie must have been channeling her inner gramps this morning when she came in at 6.26 in search of pancakes. <laughs> we found some. I can't remember the substance of any of these conversations with Dad, but they left me with the impression some three decades later that he cared about how I was doing every day no matter how mundane the day. The phone calls as I got into college were less frequent, but they were more desperate on my part. I remember calling him one night as I was struggling through a reading of Whitehead, and Dad's patience finally exhausted said to me, well, you know, a little failure is good for everybody. <laughs> Somehow I managed to pass, but I did not take any more philosophy classes. Sorry, John, it just didn't, didn't get in. It takes a certain person, especially to teach it. While Dad's own graduation from college had spelled the end of his participation in pugilistic sports, he continued running, and he was an accomplished distance runner who tried to encourage my participation as well. I was interested if there was a t-shirt involved. Does this sound familiar, Meredith? And when I did run a race, Dad would stay back with me at my pace, encouraging me throughout. And then he would go and check the times to see how he would have done if he'd run at his own pace. And then I would hear, I could have won if I didn't stay with you, turkey. <laughs> I was there when Dad finished his first marathon that ended in what was then the Baltimore Arena. Uh, my good friend Guido Steubenrock and I cheered him on. And Dad remained so committed to running for a period of time that he would run in the dead of winter and sweat would pour down on his beard and it would freeze in icicles and then he looked even more like Gandalf than he does <laughs> did in recent years. Dad, of course, had to give up running eventually, but he continued riding on his trusty bike, which was maintained, of course, at Joe's Bike Shop. And he even did an 85-mile ride with me and Joe Trail and Andy Clemmer in 2009 along the CNO Canal from Cumberland to Williamsport. Dad survived the cold, a tumble into a briar patch, and more than seven hours of conversation with Andy Clemmer. At the end of that, it wasn't a surprise that he announced his retirement from lengthy rides, at least with that crew. From running and biking, Dad graduated to walking. Anywhere and everywhere, he walked a Goucher to Towson Hot Bagels, to the Towson Public Library to check his email because 
Why would any person need a personal computer? <laughs> Even during the throes of cancer, Dad never stopped walking. The journeys got shorter, as when he first entered St. Joe's, and a walk of 10 feet would wind him. But after there for a while, and then at Genesis for rehab, and then through his own regimen at home, which was probably not doctor-sanctioned, Dad got to walking again, miles, by his lonesome, and only reluctantly carrying a cell phone because his sister, concerned person that she is, insisted. He called me one day in February and told me that he had walked from his home to the giant on York Road, which is a distance of about one and a half miles, and then he bought groceries there. I was taking this all in and I said, and you walked back? And he said, yes. And you took the groceries with you? And he said, no, Jason, I left them there. <laughs> His sense of humor never deserted him. Our last day spent out and about together was March 29th, and it consisted of a trip to Trader Joe's, of course, and then here to Goucher, where Dad instructed me to stay in the car while he ran some errands in Van Meter, and then we went back home, and we went for a walk, probably about a mile around the beautiful, excuse me, we started up going up those beautiful but treacherous stone steps leading from his house, and he shuffled backwards. I had to catch him, and Dad said, that's why I don't usually take this way. It was the least I could do for someone who was always there to catch me when I took a misstep, and there have been plenty. Then we walked around his beloved neighborhood. He pointed out for the umpteenth time, oh, this is the fine stone home of a Quaker who's a stained glass maker and a pacifist. And then, we, we came back, and we were joined by Gail Opel, who is here, a Goucher brat, a grad who brought us a lunch of potato leek soup and matzos. I left a little while later that afternoon, and Dad hugged me and said, I wish you lived closer, man. And I really want to get to Hagerstown soon to see Kelly and the girls and the Clemmers. Of course he did not. Dad went to the hospital that night, and from there to Gilchrist, where the care was exemplary. I was blown away by the diverse community of people who came to visit. Goucher alums, students, faculty, many, many from the Jonah House community, people from Witness Against Torture, Jamie, Katie, Edie, John, Joe, Nancy, my beloved in-laws, Gary and Lori, even some of Dad's former in-laws, John and Margie Glenn, were there. And of course, Rebecca and Kelly and Meredith. Many more of you called and texted and wrote during that time. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. Your thoughts and your prayers sustained Dad during that time and sustained me. It made me very proud to know that Dad was part of so many diverse but very compatible communities. If you never ventured into Joe's house, or Joe's nest, as the sign says and still reads, you're missing out. The walls of Dad's house were, well, they're kind of like a Facebook wall. 
They've got old but never updated postings like photos and graduation and wedding announcements and cartoons, newspaper articles, symphony tickets, poems, $2 bill from my father-in-law, all providing a rich context and text of Joe Morton's life and adventures and relationship. It captured the 20 years that he lived at 7727 York Road. The funny thing is he did the same thing at a smaller residence uh, when we lived at 3801 Greenmount Avenue, where his landlord, Michael Berkey, would also become dad's accountant, attorney, and dear friend. Side note is that when Mike came to visit dad at Gilchrist, Rebecca inquired, do we have this, two oh, excuse me, I have to say why Mike was there. Uh, other than to visit dad, of course, he brought dad's tax returns for me to sign. And Rebecca inquired, do we have the two certainties represented right here in this room? Indeed we did. I want to leave you with some of dad's words, but not a lot of people are going to recognize these because to read them, you had to go to dad's bathroom, which was not part of his Facebook wall. If you never use dad's facilities, my advice, don't. <laughs> Men, go outside. Ladies, hold it in or go to Katie's room, or Katie's house. Dad had many, many skills, but housekeeping was not among them, and his bathroom was exhibit A in the proof. Katie would make surreptitious forays into dad's bathroom from time to time to clean it, and once he was sick, I could clean without fear of reprisal. Dad even thanked me one time for making his bathroom look so clean. What I didn't tell him was, I used a product with bleach in it. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. Anyway, taking up most of the space in the mirror in Dad's room is a, again, a typewritten sign about this size made by Dad, and it has these words. Appreciate this day, cheerfully. Do work for its intrinsic worth or decline it courteously. Respect others' feelings, beliefs, priorities without being controlled by them. No anger, fear, hatred. Time and energy for own well-being, spiritual and physical. Don't cheat in any way. Simplify every way. Keep the list short. Changing is okay. Words to live by, and apparently to groom by. Dad would be the first to admit that he was flawed, but he challenged himself to live up to those words every day. I probably break them every day, probably in the morning, right, Meredith? But I'm striving, especially now that I no longer have Dad here in the flesh, to embody these principles. It's a way to feel his presence and to honor his memory. Dad, I miss you every day, and I love you. And I'm so glad that we got to say that to each other many, many times over your last several months. I don't know that you were the best dad. These rankings are unofficial, says Jerry Seinfeld. But I know that you were the best dad for me. And I'm blessed and honored to tell the world that I am Joe Morton's son. Thank you.
just a few words of introduction about Meredith. She is going to perform the same number that she did the day that Dad went to Gilchrist Hospice facility. And it was appropriate that she do that, and it was her idea, by the way, because Dad really encouraged Meredith's love of the cello, probably because Dad loved the cello. Again, he couldn't play, he wanted someone else to. And he really enjoyed spending time whenever he came to visit hearing Meredith play. Now, just a few days ago on Wednesday, Meredith got to go see Yo-Yo Ma perform with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra with tickets that Dad had purchased a year ago. So, no pressure, honey. <laughs> it's a burden to follow Jason, but actually I get to, um, it meant I got to take notes. And um, I wanna say, first of all, I know that dad spent a night in the hospital, uh, not in the hospital, in jail in the 50s for running a red light. So that was not the first time he went to jail. I didn't know that um, he was a master forger with the Epstein's mother situation. Um, but I think that that is, uh, but now I, I see that it was perhaps not such an unintentional gift that his handwriting was the easiest handwriting ever to forge. And by seventh grade or so, I was writing notes in his hand. And whenever I missed a permission slip or something, um, I, I, I could always, his, his hand was easier than mom's because of that Catholic school thing. So, um, so, so I kind of wonder if he, if that was his way of providing an opportunity that, um, you know, a, a sort of a, an egalitarian thing, like here's, a, here's some not so hard handwriting to um, forge kids. Um, 
Yeah, I think those are my only notes, um, except that I promised myself that if I ever got on top of a roof or um, near a big microphone, I would thank from the bottom of my heart um, Joe Trail and Edie Sanford for the kind of day-to-day that they did these past several months, and I want you and your families to know that on behalf of Jason and me, we know exactly what it means and how very much it means to take time away from your own family to help someone else's. So I just, I don't know what we would have done without you. I know that um, I would have been in Maryland more and um, much, I I would have been much, uh, much less confident that he was cared for. I have two things to read um, before I share my thoughts. I'm going to read what was sent to us by, um, by our Aunt Veronica, who lives in Ramatgan. She crafted what she called a speechlet. Um, and uh, I will read from, from her words. 80 years ago, when Joe was born, it was not easy for me to be his big sister. He arrived adorable, red-haired, and ended my reign as only child. For many years, our relationship was a turbulent one. However, as we grew up, life became easier. We did many things together, and for me, his greatest joy, I'm sorry, Hmm, I don't know who translated this into English, but the greatest joy was having someone ask if we were twins. Because Joe was my younger brother, I could appreciate his accomplishments without having to live up to them. When he began running cross country, I went to every single meet, even before he became Monroe County champion. I was always part of the crowd, cheering for him as he crossed the finish line usually in first place. When he was a candidate for student body vice president, he won by a landslide and celebrated his victory. I was proud to have worked on his campaign. When at his graduation, it was announced that he had had a perfect score on his regent's physics exam, I could applaud with the rest of the audience and not be envious. As an adult, Joe supported the causes he believed in, not by writing a check or signing a petition. He did do those things, what's she talking about? Um, But with his heart and body physically going out to demonstrations. I was proud, but also very worried when he went to prison, not prison, um, for demonstrating in the Capitol's rotunda some 25 years ago. More recently, in his 70s, he demonstrated outside the White House to close Guantanamo. In October, I came with my son Michael for what we all knew was to be our farewell visit. On a rare afternoon when there were no visitors, just the two of us, Joe tearfully told me that he knew that would be the last time we'd be seeing each other. We did talk on the phone frequently. When I think of Joe's last months, the words of Dylan Thomas seem most appropriate. 
Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Joe raged to the end. In spite of almost unbearable pain, he refused to have a live-in caretaker. In our last phone conversation, he told me he had finally agreed to having someone come for a few hours, not that he needed help, but he didn't want Jason and Rebecca to worry about him. Others present here knew Joe in so many roles and for different lengths of time. I was fortunate in being his big sister, literally all his life, a life he left too early. So that is from our Auntie V. Um, and now these are my words. I presume that much of what will be recollected today will be about my father's ideas and convictions, the life of his mind. I'd like to talk a bit about his facility with materials and his relationship to his physical surroundings. My father was a natural and dedicated athlete who taught me to dive first off a ledge at the Beaverdam Quarry where the water was even with the rock, then a few marble steps higher, then climbing those rocky inclines seeking higher and higher perches off which to hurl my tiny self. In the winter, we ice skated on nearby ponds, and one school night when I didn't want to leave the Phoenix Road Mill Pond, my dad said that as long as it remained frozen, if I woke up early enough, he would take me skating before I had to get on the school bus. So for the first time in my life, I set an alarm, and as long as that cold spell lasted, I got up in time to get in a skate before I had to go to school. Till the one day we were skating and there was a rumbling that started in our feet. The ice was cracking and it was thunderous. It was thunder from below. It was dramatic, cinematic really, and I remember being both awestruck and unafraid. We were practical and adept in the out of doors, my dad and me, and we'd figure it out, and we did. Um, one of my favorite anecdotes about my father in the world um, is that the philosopher Kingsley Price, may he rest in peace, navigated the Homewood campus and the Charles Village neighborhood on foot without the aid of a cane or seeing eye dog for decades. He gardened in his California home and played piano as well as any concert musician. Kingsley was my father's beloved teacher and he once confided to my dad that the thing he most regretted about his blindness was that he had never been able to drive a car. Well, my dad took that casual existential remark as a conscription of sorts. He took Kingsley to an empty parking lot with his big old clunky manual transmission car and he talked him through driving a teeny tiny bit. It was apparently harrowing for everyone who could see. 
but Kingsley was okay. My dad was a game and able engineer in a great variety of media. He built brick staircases and walkways and an outdoor fireplace on the grounds of our childhood home, the old Phoenix Road Prospect Lodge, with a formidable combination of three-dimensional imagination and brute strength. He terraced the hills with stone walls, sculpting the steep inclines into the beds where my mother worked her gardening magic. That infrastructure is intact these 40 years later. I, um, I was lucky enough to see it a little last fall. He built shelving and cabinets. He taught me to use his tools, to which I had unfettered access from a very young age. In photos from the early 70s, I am often wearing enormous sunglasses. Styly as they are, I am pretty sure they are not a fashion statement. I'd wager that when those photos were snapped, I was about to, or had just finished, hammering something, chiseling something, sawing something, or setting something on fire with a magnifying glass. <laughs> All things my father taught me to do that laid the foundation of my own life's work. And much to my own nuclear family's perpetual bemusement and chagrin, my day-to-day -day lifestyle. My father demolished things as well. The rage of which our Auntie V wrote, rage against injustice, along with indignation on behalf of people wronged, he would say persons wronged, those colleagues of his know, um, confidence in one's own rectitude. This is the fuel that's necessary to power an activist's convictions and endeavors. The size and sentiment of this gathering and the endless stream of loving visitors in the hospital and then hospice show me how well he was able to harness that energy for good. And for that, I am genuinely glad. But that chemistry proved too combustible for family life. It begat casualties, and I was one of them. I was afraid of his rage, and I dare say he liked it that way. May that fear rest in peace with him. But I am not afraid of deep water, or high dives, or sharp instruments, or building a big fire. I'll get up early on a regular old work day, to shoehorn in an outdoor adventure. I'm even up for a certain amount of driving blind. And those things, those things I will keep alive. Driving blind. Hmm. Um, I'm here to talk about Joe and Goucher College. And I'll try not to repeat much of what Jason said, but he did uh, steal a few things. In Joe's uh, manuscript memoir, he starts with the discussion of the term alma mater, which uh, Jason referred to. But he, he used the term nourishing mother. And he said, this is a direct quote, without doubt, the nourishing mother for my life has been Goucher College the institution in which I have flourished, largely because of her almost unlimited faith in and support for me. 
So it's fair to say that Joe returned that faith in large measure. Over the last few weeks, I've been able to um, receive messages from many of his former students, and I'm just in awe of his impact on their, on their lives. And I'll get back to that in a few minutes. He did say, as Jason said, that uh, his job at Goucher was the only job he ever had, but it wasn't just one job. He was part-time faculty, full-time faculty. Um, he, his main interest in philosophy was ethics with a special emphasis in human rights, but as you can see in John Rose's essay in your program, that interest was rooted in a, a rigorous classical tradition. Other elements of his job, his one job, he was co-director of the first year program with Gretchen Van Ut. Gretchen's here today. Uh, assistant Dean for Advising, Director of the Freshman Seminar, The Common Intellectual Experience. He aided in Goucher's hosting of the International Conference of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, um, just one of many organizations he supported over the years. He and Rick Pringle were the uh, honchos behind that, that particular event. In 1989, Jason mentioned uh, Jane Addams, but in 1989, he presented a paper at the Women in Peace Conference celebrating the 100th anniversary of Hull House. And he said that Jane Addams was one of the persons who most influenced his life. And the, the experience of presenting that paper at that conference exposed him to the academic study of peace. So when he returned to campus, he began pulling in colleagues from an assortment of departments to begin a conversation that would lead to the founding of peace studies at Goucher. He came to refer to that, the creation of that program as one of the single most important achievements of his life. Peace studies has become one of Goucher's strongest majors and many of its graduates are here today. Um, it's really been a personal privilege for me to work closely with the department and with Joe and with so many of those amazing students. Uh, the current Peace Studies faculty, led by Sebla Dawit, has great admiration for the groundwork that Joe laid and for his continued involvement with the program after he retired. He was actually scheduled to speak at one of Sebla's classes the very week he died. He, was always, he always connected also with the students who received the Joe Morton Award for Outstanding, Excellent, Outstanding Achievement in Peace Studies and came to as many student presentations as he could. Peace Studies Professor Jen Best says, to me, Joe was a person who paid attention, who reached out when he could help, and who never shied away from a challenge. He was a model of integrity, and due to his humility, I've learned as much about that integrity since his death as I learned while he was alive. I recall him telling me once that peace work is difficult, and that people will avoid you while you're working for justice. His advice was simple and truthful. He didn't sugarcoat it or romanticize the journey. He told me it was hard work, often lonely, even isolating, but that doing the right thing was an end in itself. He told me this while we were walking around the old equestrian field on a bright day. Something about it was perfect and perfectly Joe. Uh, Joe's closest ties were with peace studies and philosophy, but we're a small community and his relationships across campus were many, as I think Bart Hausman will, will be telling you. He also had close ties with the library. He was a great user and after he retired, the library became his office. The library is actually right, right upstairs, up there. Um, 
So he was always, as most of you know, in the process of divesting himself of possessions. So he took advantage of our computers and our wireless instead of his own. But in, in, the, in the process, he made a point of getting to know all members of the library, IT, and housekeeping staff in our buildings. Always had a smile and would stop by with news of his activities. He liked our book giveaway shelf and often contributed stuff to it. So the other week, we were looking at the shelf and wondered why there was this ratty pile of old file folders, and I took a closer look. Joe Morton's handwriting. So he'd bring um, obscure publications gathered from those epic road trips that he would take almost every summer, and then the next week come by with a, a few plants from the farmer's market to make up for the extra work his gifts had caused. So, in the college archives, we house Joe's papers. They're beautifully described and organized by Scott Davis in a project that was funded by the Margaret McCooch Fund. So both of those names were mentioned by Jason, but they, it forms a connection that really spans almost a century. Margaret McCooch graduated from Goucher in 1923 and was one of the very first uh, supporters of peace studies and became sort of Joe's honorary mom. They were very good friends. And then Scott graduated in 2010 with a, a major in peace studies. So the Morton Archives document involvement with many organizations such as Amnesty International, Southern Poverty Law Center, Sierra Club, Peace Brigades International, and voluminous correspondence with people like Elie Wiesel, Arun Gandhi, and numerous death row prisoners. So, but what most, um, Reflecting on Joe's impact, what stands out for me most is the relationship with students. At Goucher, we're all about students while they're here and in many cases after they leave us as well. So they're why we do what we do. Uh, Joe had great admiration for the lives and accomplishments of his students and the admiration they had for him is tremendously inspiring. So I'm just gonna read you a few things that I've received that illustrate the many ways they learn from him. So they studied challenging texts and ideas. Plato, Aristotle, the Bhagavad Gita, Gandhi, Elie Wiesel were mentioned in particular. Several responders to the Facebook notice said his logic class was the hardest thing they ever did. He introduced the study of American Indian culture and values and led several uh, student groups to South Dakota to work with the Lakotas. Uh, Tiffany Brody Blackwell says Joe talked quietly with gentle but provoking questions, allowing students the grace to truly discover their thoughts. Classes were student-centered, and at the, stu at the conclusion of each class, you left with more questions than answers. I think Joe believed in the Piagetian theory of disequilibrium. Through confusion and various viewpoints, we would find our way. Our academic journey led us to a broader understanding of the world but more importantly, how we had the power to affect it. And from Risa Gorlick, Joe brought in fabulous guest speakers who showed how community activism made a difference. I, I want to add that some of those guest speakers ended up in my living room, where my, my guest room, in fact, where my husband and I thoroughly enjoyed our times with Dwayne Hollow Hornbear and several, several other folks. Hannah Mermelstein said he walked the two miles to campus when the roads were unsafe to drive and personal, personally delivered printed articles to his students' mailboxes so we would be sure to have homework during snow days. <laughs> so they learned to write. 
Here's Risa again. I remember receiving comments on one of my first papers for the, paper, for the class that were, in fact, longer than the paper. He sent me back to revise more than once. Joe taught me to write. Mind you, I was an English major, but I learned to write scholarly work through Joe's meticulous comments, long conferences in his office, and through numerous revisions. And from Sally Fisher, one of the greatest personal gifts he gave me was also that he taught me how to write when I was a philosophy major. Oh, the extensive comments. He forced me to learn to be clear and have strong arguments, and boy, did that help me in graduate school. I tell my students about him when I'm helping them with their papers. That's from two college professors. They learned how to get things done. Risa said that she and classmates Tiffany plus Steve Zimmer and Andrew Parlin were lucky to witness the beginnings of the Peace Studies program while we were students. It was magical to see Joe work through course designs, curriculum approval, and administrative red tape to get the program off the ground. And from Tiffany, Joe taught so many life lessons, mostly patience with the process. Change takes time, but while we're waiting for the big change to occur, our presence can make an immediate difference to the people around us. They were introduced to activism. Hannah says, Joe introduced me to an activist community in Baltimore, Jonah House and others, drove me to IMF World Bank protests in DC and to the SOA pro protest in Georgia and picked me up on campus to do food, not bombs, with him on the weekends. And from Leila Shima, Joe took me to war protests and gatherings with his friends from Jonah House. Yeah. And also to other ways of being in the world, through concerts from the Baltimore Symphony to Sweet Honey and the Rock, hikes in the Goucher Woods, feeding the wildlife, biking to work, appreciating a beautiful sunrise. So Susan Ziegler, who's also here, addressed her note to Joe directly. Joe, you've taught me to appreciate the seemingly small things that can be done to make the world a better place, things that have a ripple effect. Thank you for sharing your love of the earth and of its people, especially in the indigenous ones. Thank you for your ability to exude kindness when the world around you insists on showing its ugliness. Most of all, thank you for your peaceful, unassuming existence. There were some other themes I got. You all remember the sign on Joe's office door, live simply that others may simply live. So many people mentioned that. that um, the bags of apples. So be sure to get an apple today. They're apples from the Waverly Farmers Market, um, where Joe was a customer for 30 years. Um, there were also on his door posters and membership cards for numerous organizations and events. Now, Joe, our friend Joe, was one of a kind, but he's been compared by various people. I just, who did I just, I heard Gandalf a few minutes ago. Yeah, so I heard Plato, Socrates, by way of a quote from Alcibiades, to Yoda, and from Sally Fisher's 10-year-old son, he sounds a lot like Dumbledore. <laughs> so uh, please note that J.K. Rowling describes Dumbledore as the epitome of goodness. So our, our friend Joe was clearly a complex person, and I suspect he'd be uncomfortable with some of what's being said today, but I think he'd appreciate knowing how many people referred to that, that live simply motto, and, it, and also admired his example in living that message. So here are some last words, from, again from Layla, to describe Joe. A true mensch, 
who humbly lived a fierce commitment to peace and justice, forthright and spare, his quiet that of unconditional compassion and undying dedication. His affable warmth was uncluttered by greed or judgment and welcomed everyone in. So thank you all for being here. I met Joe Morton when I was uh, 17 or eight year, 18 years old, um, as I just like I met some of the other professors <laughs> in this room um, here at Goucher College, and um, went on to live in the apartment above him for almost the last 20 years. Um, and I spent a lot of time at Jonah House with him. And um, in his last day, his last visit to Jonah House for liturgy. He read this poem by heart, and I, I couldn't be there because I was working, I think. Um, the Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the overgrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden back. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood. And I took the road that's traveled by, and that has made all the difference. He knew that poem by heart, apparently, which I learned later. Joe Morton took the road less traveled, and with luck, we each ended up upon that road, whether for a brief or a long time. And I am sure that he changed your life. And I'm sure, well, that perhaps you cannot think of him without thinking of his kindness, compassion, wisdom, and generosity. It was his way in life to give those things away. He loved Thoreau and foxes. He loved chocolate chip cookies, but didn't want to eat too many. But if you baked them, he would eat them. He loved black-eyed Susans and marigolds, but would not pick them from the yard so that other people could enjoy them. And he was so humble, none of us can even imagine how much that he did. As I mentioned before, I met Joe in a classroom on this campus, Peace Studies 101, in the van meter room with the couch in the back. I remember it well, his hair was white even then, surrounding his head in a, in a way that I couldn't figure out if it was an afro or a halo. I couldn't believe this magical real person truly existed. I might have even said as much. His investment in being true to his beliefs made it easier for me, and maybe you, to live into the truth of who you are and what you believe. He gave me more courage to care about the world, even if it seemed foolish. It was Joe who assigned my first group project, which I hated. He taught me a lesson on, lessons on listening that I would pass on to other students myself one day. And I'm pretty sure he headed up the first hunger strike I ever participated in against war. Some of you probably also met him in a classroom or at a protest. He taught me how to use a saw 
He helped teach me to drive. And I can't even tell you how much of what I believe is built on a foundation that he set. He had a way of getting the right people together without seeming like he was choreographing any of it. You might have met exactly the right people at exactly the right time because Joe Morton had a potluck. Today is no different. We are here together for exactly the right reason. To remember all the things that Joe was for each of us and what he taught us to be gentle and honest, generous and kind, and to do what is right when we know what it is. May we continue to carry on his legacy. A beautiful community gathered here together. I'm thinking so much of family members because we've gone through a lot of walks together. So what I have to say may be new or it may be very old. So the first thing we say as peacemakers is we say, Joe Morton, presente. Joe Morton, presente. What it really means to me is that he is present. I feel he and Paulie are here with us. I feel that his whole life will be one of presente because he has affected us so deeply. There are so many people in this room. Just wave your hand if you were affected by him with Jonah House, with peace, with all the work. Uh, living at the community. And we have Emily and Evie, the newborn, and Tucker, her husband, and Augie, and Joe, who have now the long haul at Jonah House as community. And we have Liz and Carol and myself. And we have all these people surrounding us as peacemakers who've been connected with us at Jonah House, which is uh, dwelling in a 22-acre cemetery, St. Peter Cemetery, and it is a peace house. Now, Joe, I will tell you all about him in that presence. First of all, he has touched so many lives. Family, community, friends, companions on the journey. He is with us now. Now, I had the single honor, I thought, until I heard Jason speak, or one of you, I think it was Rebecca, who talked about Veronica looking at him as a twin. Because Joe would always introduce me. This is Ardeth, my twin. And I tried to figure it out. I guess it's because we're both 80 years old. Or maybe it's because we both kind of like to sleep at night on the floor or something like that. I've been trying to make the connections through the years, but he always said, this is Ardeth, my twin. So Joe first started this relationship when Liz McAllister, who's sitting right back here, wife of Phil Berrigan, who was giving a presentation, one of the many presentations that she gives, and he was present. 
And so it kind of struck up that first relationship a few decades ago. Well, lo and behold, the contact didn't stop there. It continued. So Joe made contact again with Liz, with the community. They lived at Park Avenue at that time. And before you know it, we're all invited to go to Goucher College because they want to learn about nonviolence as a way of life. They want to learn about uh, resistance. How do you reject the evils of the day? And they want to learn about living in community. And they want to learn all about nuclear weapons, and they want to learn about war and how we do it to reject it. So all of us got together uh, week after week, and we taught at Goucher, thank you, for in the Peace Studies program for a number of years. We remember Joe, really, at, from Jonah House as an organizer. We remember him bringing the students over for a meal, to work, to walk the grounds. He was an organizer. He was constantly making contact. He would cross the country. He would go out west. And all along the way, guess what he would do? He never had to have a hotel. He would stop at this community and work. He would stop at that community and work. And then guess what? He would contact Jonah House and plug him in. So we had these people coming from all over the country to witness with us. So he also brought the Native American leaders to our community. So he would bring the speakers there too. And it was like our privilege to meet these beautiful people. And I understand that he taught about the Native American culture eventually. He, he just drank it in. He loved it. So he was an organizer. Secondly, we remember him as a teacher. Now what he would do is we would have these week-long retreats where college students would come from different parts of the country. And guess what? Joe would come to the circle. And he just was filled with wisdom. I mean, we could prepare for weeks with this, and Joe would come in, and he would say what he wanted to say, and he just offered so much. He would also give, can you believe it, presentations in our house church. Now, Joe wasn't too fond of religion. He didn't really want to be part of the opiate. But for a person who always discarded that, he lived it all. He lived mindfulness, he lived the way, the truth, the life. I mean, his life was like a living witness. And not only that, he read Robert Ellsberg's Saints, All Saints book. He took the saint every day. And he, he would bring it to us, who should be really steeped with the saints. Well, we remember Joe when all of a sudden, he joined the Occupy movement. Now, what I mean by that is, in the beginning, he would come to our house, and he would sleep someplace on a floor downstairs or whatever. But when Phil Berrigan died, Joe occupied his room. He was the first occupation movement. So he'd bring his clothes, his work clothes, his tools, 
and he had this room, which is also the library. So we always considered that was his home away from home. So he lived with us a number of days a week before he would go out to Hagerstown to take care of the children. And oh, he'd come back with all these marvelous stories. So we remember Joe. We remember him for all his random acts of kindness. When he was at Jonah House, he did it all. It's a 22 acre. He would go out back and clear the wooded area. If you want to see his legacy, you'll see his gardens that he made. He created them in the plots. You will see that he split wood, he stacked wood, he provided the wood for the wood stoves. He would do sowing seeds, he would sow the seeds, he would build the birdhouse, the butterfly house, he would get the feed, he would fill the feeders. I mean, it was like he just did everything he could think of for the four-leggeds, for the two-leggeds, for the human beings. Somebody would come to the door, if we weren't there, he would feed the people. He would do all of the things that were essential for Jonah House. He would, he would take the compost out. He would make the compost piles. You know, it was really sad because like Ted and Amy, who lived before the community that is there now, Ted wrote to me this morning and he said, oh, he said, I wish I could be there, but I have to be at my job. But he said, I remember Joe taking little Eli walking him out in the cemetery and teaching every color, every hue, every flower, every tree. He said he just, he just did it for the next generations. He loved children, and he showed it by everything that he did. So they're here in spirit because they really would be here otherwise if he did not have to work. Every Monday, he would go out to pick up the Panera bread, the day-old bread, for the people for the food program the following day. So, I mean, these were his random acts uh, of kindness that he did. He was a lover, a lover of people and a lover of all creation. So we remember also when we would have to be at the faith and resistance retreats and everybody was gone, you could count on Joe. He was the caretaker. He would feed the llamas, he would feed the donkeys, he would feed the goats, he would feed the guinea fowl, the fish, the cats, and the people that came to the door. I mean, he would take the phone calls just like they were, this is his home, and he would welcome the visitors, he would serve the meal on Sundays at times, and also he would, when we would get back from the retreat, there it was, the soup was on the stove. But I guarantee you, whoever said it was very accurate. He did not know how to clean. <laughs> we remember Joe, too, as a justice peacemaker. He had fidelity every Monday night down at the prison, the jail, in the witness to stop the death penalty. So faithfully, you could count on him being present with his banners. And so when the death penalty in, in Maryland was banned, you can imagine his celebration of that reality. He did not believe in killing at all. And then he went to 
Washington, D.C., what, 13, 14 years ago now, after the people came back from Cuba, witness against torture. You would see him in his orange jail suit with his black hood walking through the streets. But not only that, I mean, then he'd be arrested. He'd go through the process. He would be the jailed at that time. And then, you know, it was really amazing because as soon as he'd get out, he'd go buy all the juice because they would always fast all those days. He would buy the juice. He would make sure to serve it. I mean, can you get beyond that? This is the professor. This is the professor. Now, I want to tell you one story you might not know, or maybe you do. Joe always kept a big stash of cash in the car. Did you know that? So whenever there was a homeless person, he would pull out a bill, give it to him. It could be a 20. It could be a 50. It could be 10. It could be, he never knew, he never counted the cost. So this one day, we're driving down Fulton Street, he's riding with us, Liz is driving, we're, and we stop at a stoplight. All of a sudden, the homeless man with the sign, hello, Dr. Morton. <laughs> How are you, Steve? How are you doing? Are you okay? He goes into our stash of quarters for parking, gets them all up, and he gives all the quarters to him. And he says, now you take good care of yourself. That's Joe Morton. So the encounter with him has always been so special. We have gratitude to him, to his family, to Goucher, to all his friends for sharing this holy man with us. We will always remember his spirit his generosity, his spirituality, his kindness, his compassion, his legacy, and what he's really done for all of us, I guarantee you, is he has opened our hearts so wide. We will never forget him, and we will love him as he is Joe Morton Presente. Do you realize how tricky it is to be the seventh speaker? <laughs> but it's fun to do because I will tell you two stories that you haven't heard. You see, Joe and I began at Goucher at almost the same time. He, I began in 1961. He began in 63. We both found ourselves being carefully nourished by an elderly faculty who cared a lot to see us succeed. And it was wonderful. And we, the two of us, grew together as a result in a way that is almost incomparable. We learned to trust each other in ways that I never trusted another faculty member. I just know and just knew constantly 
that if Joe did it, it must be okay. And I knew also that he always would support to the extent that he could what I did. We were very different. He was doing all of these good things trying to get himself locked in jail and I was making research money from Los Alamos laboratories and from Edgewood Arsenal and I still contend that it was worth doing but you can imagine that it was just a different way of looking at the maintenance of the word that was so important to Joe, peace. The story that I want to tell you, however, happened early. We both decided that it was good time for the faculty to develop an afternoon of basketball. And Joe, being a good athlete, and I, being able to do it too, thought it was a terrific idea. And so we went around to the entire faculty to round up people to play basketball on Friday afternoons. We struck out completely. <laughs> we tried the administration and struck out completely. Close close to completely. And finally, it was Fred Ware, Director of Development, who said to me, Bart, don't you realize in Baltimore, white boys don't play basketball? I had no idea coming from the Midwest. And so, the solution to the problem was recognizing that at that time, in the early 60s, the Goucher faculty was still lily white. It was true that the physical plant, particularly the housekeeping, and even more particular, particularly the outdoor housekeeping, was completely brown-skinned. And so we began to pursue people who might want to play. And it didn't take very long at all when the two of us had no trouble rounding, rounding enough wonderful basketball players, all of whom had never had a chance to do what they ended up doing to a couple of faculty members. The fact was that it was an important experience to both Joe and me, and I have a hope that it was an important experience for these black guys who had never had a chance to play and enjoy themselves with a couple or a few white guys. We got more white guys around by the time we were done, but we played together for years. We even played together and had so much fun that the girls' basketball team asked us if they could play with us. And we let them play with us and found out that they were at least as good as we were. 
and then got carefully stepped on by the physical education department when they said, no, this is not to be done. And at that point, our custom stopped. But it was a great experience. And Joe and I can take credit. We never realized it until it was all over. But we can take credit for integrating Goucher College. Joe and I, even though we were so different, and as I said, had different ways of going at truth, found that the one thing that, as I said, that we could do was to trust each other. And I always felt that Joe could do no wrong. And I hope that he felt the same way about me. We often went our own ways, and we had, as a result, different contacts because of the different kinds of lives that we lived. But as Joe got older and less able to get around, I'm thinking particularly of the last months, it was my opportunity to kind of be his travel agent as he went from place to place. And as every Monday morning, my time was his time, my car was his taxi, and we went to, from one place to another wherever he had to go to accomplish the work of the day. And we found ourselves not only at uh, Goucher Library, but we found ourselves buying small things. And I just want to tell you about one small thing that he decided he needed. And boy, did he need it. He needed a new pair of shoes. And so we went to that cheap store up, on, uh, up at, uh, um, on, it is up in Cockeysville. And we looked around for shoes, and Joe was looking in the $20 section. And I said, Joe? You need a good pair of shoes. And he said, Bart, you have no idea how short I have to use them. And of course, he was perfectly right. This wasn't more than three weeks before he died. The story that I want to leave you with, however, is one that perhaps I'm the only one to know. Before Joe ended up at Gilchrist, most of you know that he had two major scares in which he came about this far from being dead. And they took this completely limp Joe, brought him to the hospital, and brought him back with a lot of heroics, not once but twice. And the last time Joe and I were together, he said, Bart, I don't know how you're going to take this. Now, he and I had had a lot, of, a lot of arguments, not arguments, but discussions in the past about things like the life hereafter, which, as he clearly said, 
Bart, that life hereafter stuff and the existence of God stuff. He says, that's, you don't know that, you believe that, you choose to believe that. And he said, I choose to simply admit that I don't know. And with all of this in the background, Joe says to me, you know, the last time that they were frantically working on me in the hospital, bringing in all kinds of equipment and specialists and help, and they were trying to get me going, he said, I have to tell you, I had what can only be called an out-of-the-body experience. He said, while they were trying to get me going, he said, I wasn't there. I was, he says, I would like to tell you, I was kind of up in the corner of the room, looking down on this frantic process of them trying to bring me back. And he said, I could see all the details. And I wasn't wrong. I could see the equipment that they were bringing in. And it turned out to be right. Now he says, Bart, that's my story. And who knows, maybe he is watching right now. It would be a delight if that were the case. Thank you so much. All right, I, I think Sadie cannot last another moment without eating. And we hope that you will stick around and eat. Dad would enjoy that. And you can break bagel with us, I suppose, one of Dad's favorites. And um, so please stay, enjoy uh, each other's company, share in the Joe stories, and um, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>